0: Hi, I'm David Taub, and welcome to the Parsha Rabbit Hole, where I find something weird in the weekly Torah portion and follow it all the way down until it gets even weirder. This week's rabbit hole starts with a song and eventually gets to Masonry and Walt Disney. But, as always, we have to get there, so let's get started. In this week's Torah portion, Parsha's Beshalach, The sea splits, the Jews cross safely, and afterwards Moshe Rabbeinu, or Moses, and all of the Jews sing a song of praise to God. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to God. They said, I will sing to God, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. So the sea splits, the Jews cross safely, and they sing a song of praise to Hashem. And because of this song, this Shabbos, the Shabbos that we read this Torah portion on, is called Shabbos Shira, the Shabbos of song. But there's another interesting thing about this Shabbos, Shabbos Shira. On Shabbos Shira, there's a minug, a custom, to feed the birds. There's a few different reasons given for this. One of them is that Hashem takes care of us like little birdies. And another reason that's given is that the birds actually sing along with the Jews when they sang this song. So when I first started working on this week's episode, I knew I wanted to talk about song, maybe music in general, maybe this song in particular, but I also wanted to explore this custom of feeding the birds and see where that led. And now, Mr. Tambourine Man with the birds. And the main reason why I wanted to talk about both of these things is because there's a connection between these two things that jumped out at me right at the very beginning. If you've watched a few of these videos, you'll know that one of my biggest creative inspirations is Disney. Not just Walt Disney himself, but the entire community of artists that he built around himself and the legacy of artists that continued after him. And among those artists, two of them stand out as one of my biggest inspirations. A songwriting team known as the Sherman Brothers. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman of the Walt Disney Studio. Two Jewish brothers named Robert and Richard Sherman. They've officially wrote more film scores than any other songwriting team in history, and they wrote a song that's possibly the most played song in the entire world, It's a Small World. But arguably one of the most important songs they ever wrote is a song called Feed the Birds for the movie Mary Poppins.
1: Feed the birds,
0: tuppence
1: a bag.
0: The song is about an old beggar woman selling bags of breadcrumbs to feed the birds for tuppence a bag. It symbolizes the power of a small act of kindness and charity. And this song was actually a turning point not only in the story of the movie, but also in the story of how the movie was made. Walt Disney and the writers of the movie were having a hard time figuring out what the movie was about.
1: This entire script is flimflam. Where is
0: its heart? And when the Sherman brothers wrote this song, Feed the Birds, Walt Disney said, that's what it's all about. He looked at us and he said, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And when Walt Disney said that, it wasn't just about Mary Poppins. It was about everything. He was feeding the birds all his life. He was giving love. It Doesn't take much to give love. That's what it's all about. So in Walt Disney's eyes, this song written by two Jewish boys about the power of a small act of kindness was what it's all about. And so it was interesting to me that these two Jewish men, who were known for their songs, were also known for feeding the birds. And this is also the same two things that this Shabbos is known for, song and feeding the birds. So I wanted to find a path that would connect this song to feeding the birds, and not just because the birds sang along with us, but in a more rabbit-holy type of way. So let's dive in. So let's start with this song, the Song of the Sea. It's called a song, shir in Hebrew, and it's interesting that it's called a song because we actually don't know how it was sung. We don't know the musical notes for it. The trump for this song, the tune that we use when we're reading it from the Torah and synagogue, is different than the tune that we use for everything else. But there's no indication that that's how Moses and the Jews sang it when they left Egypt. And different communities have different ways of singing it. But one of the defining features of a shir, a song, in Torah is that it's written differently. The physical layout of the words is different. This song, the Song of the Sea, as well as the Song of Devorah in this week's Haftarah, is written in a staggered form, where there's words and blank spaces. So part of the poetry of this song is the physical layout of the typography. And I knew that that's a thing in poetry. There are poems that use the typography as part of the expression of the poem. So I looked it up, and what it's called is concrete poetry. It's called concrete because it's using the physical form of the words and the letters as part of the expression of the poem. I'm attempting to visualize my thoughts. Watch. Cue. But it's actually fitting that the word that's used for this type of poetry is concrete. Because the analogy that's used in Gemara in the Talmud for the format of these songs is masonry or brickwork. The Gemara says that all the songs in Torah are written in the form of a half brick on top of a whole brick, and a whole brick on top of a half brick. This means that there's half a brick of text on top of a whole brick of blank space, and a whole brick of blank space on top of a half a brick of text. So you get this staggered layout of text and blank space. So I looked up different types of brick patterns and I found this handy diagram that shows a few different types of brick layouts. And it seems like the type of brickwork that's described in the Gemara that's used for the songs in the Torah is called a Flemish bond, where you have a staggered pattern of half brick, whole brick, half brick, whole brick. The Gemara continues and says that there are two songs which are an exception to this rule and have a different format. And it's actually interesting that these are called songs because, to me, there's nothing particularly songy about them. But I couldn't find any information about that. But one of the things that makes them be songs and makes them different is that they're written differently. So these two songs are the list of the ten sons of Haman in Megillus Esther, and one about the downfall of Canaanite kings in the time of Yeshua, Joshua. These songs are written in the form of a half brick on top of a half brick and a whole brick on top of a whole brick. Meaning that all of the text is stacked on top of each other and all of the blank spaces are stacked on top of each other. So you get a column of text and a column of blank space. And the Gemara says that the reason for this is so that they should never rise from their downfall. Okay, so that's interesting that the format of these songs, these lists of people who were bad to us and were defeated, is written as a column of text and that's supposed to symbolize their eternal downfall. But the Gemara here doesn't say why it symbolizes that. But in Maseches Seifrim, it does. It says all of the same things that it said in that Gemara about the half bricks and whole bricks and about how these two songs are different. But there's a few extra words that explain why that format of a column of text and a column of blank space represents this idea of a downfall that you can't bounce back from. And it says, because a structure that's built like this can't stand. So if we go back to our brickwork diagram, we see that this type of pattern is called a stack bond. And on the same website that I got that diagram from, it explains that this type of bond is purely decorative. You shouldn't use it for something that's supposed to be structural, it's only for an interior decorative wall. So basically, because we're talking in these songs about bad guys who tried to hurt us and they were defeated and we don't want them to ever be able to rise up from that defeat ever again, Therefore, the actual physical format of the way that we write their names is in the form of a structure that could never stand. But as it turns out, Michael was right to not be optimistic it could be done. So this is fascinating to me, not just because the masonry stuff checks out, but just in general, the idea that the typography of a Torah scroll is an art form, and that their are ideas being expressed just in the way that the words and letters are laid out on the parchment. I've actually struggled myself as an artist trying to figure out what the place is for visual art in Torah and in Judaism. And yeah, you can tell me medieval illuminated manuscripts, but to see visual expression in a Torah scroll itself, that's really cool to me. Okay. So we've got a nice visualization for those exceptions, those stacked names that are written in the form of a structure that can never stand. But we haven't really seen an explanation for why our song, the song of the sea is written in this staggered Flemish bond style. So I put this phrase, Ariya Kalgabe Lavena, a half brick on top of a whole brick, into the search box in Safaria, and I found a few different explanations of this layout, all of them explaining this positive and negative space in different ways. You Why see not? what's gonna happen, don't you? No, what? It's gonna erase us! Oh no! We'll start with the Maharal of Prague, and it's interesting to note that the Maharal of Prague, as far as I can tell, is the earliest example of this custom of feeding the birds. Every year on Shabbos Shira, the Maharal of Prague would gather all of the local children into the synagogue courtyard, and he would tell them the story of the splitting of the sea, and all of the miracles surrounding it, including the bird stuff, and then they would feed the birds. So that's an interesting connection, but I didn't find anything from the Maharal himself talking about this custom. But I did find something very interesting about our brickwork in the song. And this is what he says. He says that this song and others like it in Torah are about the experience of moving from circumstances of restriction to more freedom and expansiveness. So the point of this song is to thank God for taking us out of a bad situation and putting us in a better situation. And he points out that even though the Jews were brought out of Egypt, Egypt wasn't completely destroyed. And that wasn't the point of it. And that's not what we were thanking Hashem for. It wasn't about the destruction of the enemy. It was about the Jews being in a better situation. And therefore, he says, that's why this song is written in the form of a half brick on top of a whole brick, where you have chunks of text with chunks of blank space in the middle, because that represents the harchava, the expansiveness and the lack of restrictions that we're thanking Hashem for in these situations. So according to the Maharal of Prague, the typography of this song is a visualization of the experience of going from the restrictions of slavery to freedom. But according to Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, one of the early leaders of the Hasidic movement, this unique format is actually a diagram of how the miracle of the splitting of the sea worked. He takes the words of the verse that introduces this song, that says Which would normally be translated as Moses and the children of Israel saying this song to Hashem Hashira Hazais la Hashem This song to Hashem But the way he translates it is Hashira Hazais la Hashem The song of this to God Meaning that it's a song about zeis the feminine form of the word this returning to its source to Hashem he says that zeis is the name of a level in each thing in creation that receives its life force from Hashem and what happened during the splitting of the sea is that the Chaius, the life force of the sea returned back to its source to Hashem and then when that happened the nature of the sea broke and it automatically split and then he goes on and explains how is the world created what is the life force of everything in creation it's god's speech the words of Hashem, the letters that make up the names of everything in creation, are the life force through which they were created. And so during Kriyas Sef, the splitting of the sea, the letters that enliven the sea were removed from it and it split. And so he says that's why this song is written in the form of a half brick of text and then a whole brick of blank space, to show the vacuum of empty space where there's no letters. So, according to Lavrietsko of Berdichev, the format of this song with the text and the blank spaces is actually a diagram of the spiritual mechanics of the miracle of the splitting of the sea, where the letters of creation were removed from that part of creation, leaving a blank space. So this was interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's different to how I've seen the spiritual mechanics of this miracle described in other places in Hasidus, and Jewish mysticism, particularly in Chabad Hasidus. Usually what I've seen is that the way this miracle worked is through the continuous intervention of God continuously making the sea do something that it normally wouldn't do. So it's interesting to see here it being described as removing the life force from the sea that gave it its nature so that it did weird stuff and split, I guess. Now, it could be that I'm completely misunderstanding what Levi Yitzchak of Brzechev is saying here. And if you think you understand it differently than how I said it, please let me know in the comments. But the other thing that I think is interesting about this is that it gives us yet another way of finding even more meaning in the visual layout of the song itself. Okay, so now we've got two different, both very interesting ways of looking at the blank space in this song. One from the Maharal of Prague, who says that it's a visualization of the experience of going from slavery to freedom. And then we've got Levi Yitzchok of Brdichev saying that it's a diagram for how the spiritual mechanics of the miracle worked. But we haven't gotten back to the birds yet. But while I was digging around for this phrase, the half brick on top of the whole brick, eventually I stumbled upon an explanation from Pinchas of Kuritz, who is a student of the Baal Shemtiv and another one of the early leaders of the Hasidic movement. And he connects the bricks to the birds. This is what he says. So he's explaining why we have a custom to feed the birds on Shabbos Shira. And he says that birds are known for being singers. Birds sing, but also birds rule the air. They fly around in the air. And he says that music comes from air. He says, you can't play a musical instrument without air. And also in singing, someone who has large lungs is good at singing. And then he says, that's why these words are written in the form of a half brick of text with a whole brick of blank space. So that the words have air in between. Okay, so this is great. It connects our birds to our bricks in a very interesting way, but I had some questions. First of all, when he says that you can't play a musical instrument without air, I was wondering if that's only referring to wind instruments, instruments that you actually have to blow into to produce the sound. And also what was interesting to me is that now we have a new way of looking at this blank space. We've looked at this blank space as representing freedom from the Maral of Prague and we've looked at it as representing a vacuum of godly life force from Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev, And now we're looking at that blank space as the air that's an integral part of music. And I knew that there was something really interesting here, but I don't know enough about music to be able to explain it. So I reached out to a very dear friend of mine, Rabbi Yisroel Aryeh Gutblat, who is an extremely talented musician, and here's how he explained it. Hi, David. Thank you for sending me that midrash
1: Pinchas. I'm always fascinated by the Torah view on music not just theoretical, but also how to apply it actually to music. So there's really brings up a couple of things musically. There's really no better way to demonstrate than with drums. So one of those elements is the idea of how air is a medium that transmits sound. So You see, if you hit a drum, skin, it vibrates the air, similar to the way you would drop a pebble in water and the water creates waves. A drum will create sound waves. You can actually see the vibrations if you would slow it down and look closely. Another thing that it brings up is this idea of space in music in general. And a lot of people think of the notes you play as being the essential part of music. And regarding rhythm, it's actually the notes you don't play that's even more important. Because ultimately, the, the rhythm is inside the musician. A lot a great drummers say, the rhythm is inside of you, you're just revealing it. So you can reveal parts of it, or more of it, and sometimes the less you reveal, the more you bring out the rhythm. So, for example, you take a basic beat. and well, that rhythm is still going, a little example, demonstration, how I see space in music.
0: Thank you Israel Arya. that was amazing. Okay, so now we've got a solid connection between the song and the Minog, the custom of feeding the birds. Which is that not only did the birds supposedly sing along with us during the Song of the Sea, but the song itself, the way it's written with the blank spaces in between the words, visually expresses the relationship of the birds with space. So I was thinking about that blank space, and one more thing occurred to me with regard to the Sherman brothers, who I mentioned at the beginning of the video. The older of the two brothers, Robert Sherman, was the first American to set foot in Dhaka when it was liberated. He was an American soldier and the only Jew in his squad. And that experience haunted him for the rest of his life. I knew a little bit about this from documentaries, but I actually reached out to Robert Sherman's son, Jeff Sherman, who's a very talented and accomplished musician in his own right. And I asked him if I could share the conversation that we had. And he said, I could. So I asked him if he had any insights into how his father and uncle's music may have been influenced by their Jewish identities and backgrounds. And he mentioned his father's traumatizing experience, seeing the horrors of the Holocaust up close, and how understandably that made it very difficult for him to have any type of faith after that. But he said his father continued to engage with Judaism, with Jewish culture and Jewish ideas. Throughout his life, Robert Sherman painted, and it seems that later in his life, he engaged with Jewish ideas through painting, and one of those paintings is this painting of Moses at the sea. So as I was researching this rabbit hole, and the idea of this blank space, and all the different ways to find meaning in it, started to take form for me, and I started to think about this person who, for me, represents both the song and the birds, and how there was this blank space that existed for him, and yet he was still able to engage with that blank space. It's just a thought it's not fully formed but i wanted to share it with you and if you have any thoughts on this please share it in the comments okay so so far the rabbit hole has bridged the bricks to the birds and given us some beautiful blank space in between but i'm going to throw a monkey wrench into the situation there's actually a halakhic problem with feeding the birds on shabbos Shira. the Magen of Rum addresses this custom and the halakhic problems associated with it he says that some have the custom of feeding wheat to the birds on Shabbos Shira, and I just want to note that this custom, the way it originally shows up in sources, is to feed the birds on Shabbos itself. And the Magen Avram says this isn't right. You shouldn't do that because ein mazinasa alecha, their sustenance is not your responsibility. Wild birds aren't your problem. You don't have a responsibility to feed them, and therefore it's considered an unnecessary effort on Shabbos, and it's prohibited to do it. See if I can. It's nice and warm here, and I got plenty of food. So we have this beautiful custom to feed the birds on Shabbos Shira, and we can't do it because we're not allowed to feed the birds on Shabbos. Various different halachic works deal with this problem and explain why it might be okay to feed the birds on this particular Shabbos. But the way I see most people doing it, and this is the way that Chabad.org has to do it, is to feed the birds of Shabbos on Friday afternoon before Shabbos. Before Shabbos, you put out some food on the porch for the birds, and then on Shabbos, they come by and eat it. So that's a nice way to resolve this halachic conflict. Instead of feeding the birds on Shabbos, we feed the birds right before Shabbos. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe offers another way to engage with this conflict. If you remember, we spoke about earlier in the video that one of the earliest instances of this custom being mentioned is the Maral of Prague. That he would gather all of the local children into the courtyard of the synagogue on Shabbos Shira and tell them about the miracles surrounding the splitting of the sea, including the miracles involving birds, and then they would feed the birds. And the Rebbe notes that his predecessor, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, told this story publicly. And even though the Friedrich Rebbe, the Sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, told this story about the Maharal of Prague feeding the birds on Shabashira, he himself didn't do that custom. And the Rebbe explains that, obviously, the reason why he didn't do it is because of the halachic issues with it. But the Rebbe explains, even if you're not actually feeding the birds on Shabashira, you still can and should talk about feeding the birds on Shabashira. And he says that it's important to tell children this story and talk about the custom of feeding the birds in Shabashira to instill in them the good quality of compassion towards animals. So obviously one of the reasons that this jumped out at me and why I wanted to share it with you is because it's wonderful to see this lesson of compassion that we can learn from feeding the birds, or even not feeding the birds. And that ties in nicely with the Sherman brothers and their song, Feed the Birds, and its message of the importance and power of one small act of kindness and charity. Feed the birds. Time's the But the other thing that was really interesting to me was that to me this felt like another instance of that blank space, that we can still find meaning in a custom that we're not doing, that's essentially empty space. That the parts of torah and judaism that for whatever reason aren't part of our daily practice either because it's not halakhically relevant or because it doesn't go according to the halakhic authorities that we follow or because it's just difficult for us whatever reason there is for this part of judaism not being part of our actual practice for it being a blank space we can still engage with that blank space Alright, that's it. That's the rabbit hole. As always, if there's anything about any of these topics that I missed that you know something interesting about, please share it with me in the comments. Thank you for following me down the rabbit hole. Please feed the birds after you get out of the rabbit hole. I don't want to have to clean up down here.